Hello, hello, welcome back to the Rambling Sesh, and this is going to be part two of me reading scary stories to tell in the dark. Um, thank you again if you listened to the last podcast of me reading. I honestly find it kind of embarrassing reading out loud because I normally read to myself and in my head, and I think we can all agree when you read in your head, the expressions are going to be a lot more dramatic than what you would actually say out loud unless you're a kindergartner teacher then I guess that's a good excuse to like make it dramatic but (laughs) I'm good I'm good I'll start off with reading something was wrong one morning John Sullivan found himself walking along the street downtown he cannot explain what he was doing there or how he got there or where he had been earlier. He didn't even know what time it was. He saw a woman walking towards him and stopped her. I'm afraid I forgot my watch, he said, and smiled. Can you tell me the time? When she saw him, she screamed and ran. John Sullivan noticed that other people were afraid of him. When they saw him coming, they flattened themselves against a building, or ran across the street to stay out of his way. There must be something wrong with me, John Sullivan thought. I'd better go home. He held a taxi, but the driver took one look at him and sped away. John Sullivan did not understand what was going on, and it scared him. Maybe somebody at home can come and get me, he thought. He found a telephone and called his wife but a voice he did not recognize answered. Is Miss Sullivan there? He asked. No, she is at a funeral, the voice said. Mr. Sullivan was killed yesterday in an accident downtown. Next, we will be reading The Wreck. Fred and Janie went to the same high school, but they met for the first time at the Christmas dance. Fred had come by himself, and so had Janie. Soon Fred decided that Janie was one of the nicest girls he had ever met. They danced together most of the evening. At 11 o'clock, Janie said, I have to leave now. Can you give me a ride? Sure, he said. I've got to go home too. I accidentally drove my car into a tree on my way over here, Janie said. I guess I wasn't paying attention. Fred drove her to the head of Brady Road. It was a neighborhood he didn't know very well. Why don't you drop me off here, Janie said. The road up ahead is in a really bad condition. I can walk from here. Fred stopped the car and held out some tinsel. Have some, he said. I got it at the dance. Thank you, she said. I'll put it in my hair. And she did. Would you like to go out sometime to a movie or something? Fred asked. That would be fun, Janie said. After Fred drove off, he realized that he did not know Janie's last name or her telephone number. I'll go back, he thought. The road can't be that bad. He drove slowly down Brady Road through a thick woods, but there wasn't a sign of Janie. As he came around a curve, he saw the wreckage of the car instead. It had crashed into a tree and had caught on fire. Smoke was still rising from it. As Fred made his way to the car, he could see someone trapped inside, crushed against the steering column. It was Janie, and her hair was the Christmas tinsel he had given her. 
Next, we will be reading One Sunday Morning. Ida always went to the 7 o'clock Sunday morning service at her church. Usually, she heard her cleaning of the church bells while she was eating breakfast, but this morning, she heard them while she was still in bed. That means I'm late, she thought. Ida jumped out of bed, quickly dressed, and left without eating or looking at the clock. It was still dark outside, but it usually was dark at this time of year. Ida was the only one on the street. The sounds she heard were the clatter of her shoes on the pavement. Everybody must already be in the church, she thought. Ida took a shortcut through the cemetery when she quickly slipped into the church and found a seat. The service had already begun. When she caught her breath, Ida looked around. The church was filled with people she had never seen before, but the woman next to her did look familiar. Ida smiled at her. It's Josephine Kier, she thought, but she's dead. She died a month ago. Suddenly, Ida felt uneasy. She looked around again. Her eyes began to adjust to the dim light. Ida saw some of skeletons in suits and dresses. This is a service for the dead, Ida thought. Everybody here is dead, except me. Ida noticed that some of them were staring at her. They looked angry, as if she had no business there. Josephine Kier leaned towards her and whispered, Leave right after the vindication if you care for your life. When the service came to an end, the minister gave his blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you, he said. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Ida grabbed her coat and walked quickly towards the door. When she heard footsteps behind her, she glanced back. Several of the dead were coming towards her. Others were getting up to join them. The Lord lift up his contents to you, the minister went on. Ida was so frightened she began to run. Out the door she ran, with a pack of shrieking ghosts at her heels. Get out, one of them screamed. Another shouted, you don't belong here, and ripped her coat away. As Ida ran through the cemetery, a third grabbed the hat from her head. Don't come back, it screamed, and shook its arms at her. By the time Ida reached the street and the sun was rising, the dead had disappeared. Did this really happen, Ida asked herself, or have I been dreaming? That afternoon, one of Ida's friends brought over her coat and hat, or what was left of them. They had found it in the cemetery torn to shreds. Next, we will be reading Sounds. The house was near the beach. It was a big old place where nobody had lived for years. From time to time, somebody would force open the window or a door to spend the night there, but never longer. Three fishermen caught in a storm took shelter there one night. With some dry wood they found inside, they made a fire in the fireplace. They lay down on the floor and tried to get some sleep, but none of them slept that night. First they heard footsteps upstairs. It sounded like there were several people moving back and forth, back and forth. When one of the fishermen called, Who's up there? The footsteps stopped. Then they heard a woman scream. The screaming turned into a groan and died away. Blood began to drip from the ceiling into the room where the fishermen huddled. A small red pool formed on the floor and soaked into the wood. The door upstairs crashed shut, and again the woman screamed. Not me, she cried. It sounded as if she was running, her high heels tapping widely down the hall. I'll get you, a man shouted, and the floor shook as he chased her. 
Then silence. There wasn't a sound until the man who shouted began to laugh. Long please, long pells of horrible laughter filled the house. It went on and on until the fishermen thought they would go mad, when finally it stopped. The fishermen heard someone coming down the stairs dragging something heavy that bumped on each step. They heard him drag it through the front hall, out the front door. The door opened, and then it slammed shut. Again, silence. Suddenly, a flash of lightning filled the house with a green blaze of light. A ghastly face stared in the fishermen from the hallway. Then came a crash of thunder. Terrified, they ran into the storm. Next, we will be re reading A Weird Blue Light. Late one night in October 1864, a Confederate blockade runner slipped by some Union gunboats at the entrance of Gelfstone Bay in Texas and made it safely to a port with its cargo of food and other necessities. Luis Billings, the master of the small vessel, was getting ready to weigh anchor when he was startled by a shriek from one of the crew. A strange old-fashioned schooner with a big black flag was rushing down at us, Billings said later. She was afire with sort of weird, pale blue light that lighted up every nook and cranny of her. The crew was pulling at the ropes and doing other work, and they paid us no attention. Didn't even glance our way. They all had a ghastly bleeding wound, but their face and eyes were those of dead men. The man who had shrieked had fallen to his knees and his teeth chattering as he grasped out a prayer. Overcoming my own terror that was chilling, that very marrow of my bones, I rushed forward, shouting to the others I ran. Suddenly the schooner vanished before my eyes. Some say that it was a ghost of Jane Laft's pirate ship, Pride, that sank off of Gavelstone Island in 1821 or 1822. She was seen again in 1892 in the same waters with the same crew. Next, I will be reading Somebody Fell from a Loft. I had signed on an ordinary seaman on the falls of Ittrick, a merchant ship bound from England. The first time I saw that ship, I knew her right away. She was an old Gertrude spore shoe. I had sailed on her years before when she was painted brown and gold. Now she was painted black and had a new name, but it was the same ship for sure. She had a pretty good crew, and that voyage, except from one hard-looking ticket named McLaurin. He was a pretty good seaman, but there was something about him I didn't trust. He was kind of secretive, kept mostly to himself. One day somebody told him that I had worked on the old Gertrude. For some reason, he got all trembled over that. Then I catched him giving me all these ugly black looks, as if he was itching to knife me in the back. I guess it had something to do with the Gertrude, but I didn't know what. Well, this one day, he was trying to work our way through a dripping black fog. You'd scarcely know we had all the lights on, and it was dead calm. There wasn't a breath of fresh air. The ship just laid there, wallowing in through a rolling and a rolling going nowheres. I was standing my watch ground midships, and McLaurin was doing his trick of the wheel. The rest of the crew had scattered around one place to another. It was as quiet as could be. 
Then all at once, look out. This thing hits the deck right in front of Nick Lorne, and he lets go with a streak that turns my blood cold, and he falls down in a faint. The second mate starts yelling that somebody had fallen from a loft. Lying out there just forward of the wheel was someone or something dressed in oil skins with blood oozing out from underneath. The captain ran and fetched a big light from his cabin so we could see who it was. They could have straightened him out to get a good look at his face. He was big, ugly looking devil. But nobody knew who he was or what he was doing up there. At least nobody was sane. When McLaurin came to from his faint, they tried to get something out of him. All he did was jabber away and kept rolling those big, wild-looking eyes at his. Everybody was getting more and more excited. We all wanted to heave the body aboard as quick as we could. There was something weird about it, as if it wasn't real, but the captain wasn't so sure about getting rid of it that way. Could it be a stowaway? He asked. But the ship was so filled with lumber we were carrying, there was no space for a living thing could hide for three weeks, which is how long we had been out. Even if it was a stowaway, what was it doing aloft in such a dirty day? There was no reason for anyone to be up there. There wasn't nothing to see. Finally, the captain gave up and told us to heave him aboard. Then nobody would touch him. The mate ordered us to pick him up, but nobody made a move. Then he tried coxing, but that didn't do anything good. Suddenly, the lonely, lonely McLaurin started yelling. I handled him once. I can handle him again. He picks up the body and staggers over the railing with it. He is just about to throw it overboard when it wraps two big long arms around him and over they go together. Then on the way down, one of them starts laughing in a horrible way. The mates were yelling to launch a boat, but nobody would get into a boat, not on a night like that. We threw a couple of life preservers after them, but everybody knew they wouldn't help. So that was that, or was it? The first chance I had to go home after that, I went right over to see old Captain Spruce who was the captain when the Gertrude was around. Well, he says, one trip these two outlandish men shipped abroad to Gertrude. One was McLaurin, and the other was a really big fella. The big one was always picking on McLaurin and dumping him around, and McLaurin was always talking about how he would get back at him. Well, this wet dirty night the two of them was up there alone and the big one come flying down and killed himself deader in a hearing mclaurin says the foot rope they were using parted and how he almost fell himself but everybody who saw that rope knew he didn't give away on her own she had been cut through with a knife after that whenever we came into port mclaurin thought we were going to get the police after him and he get pretty scared but we couldn't prove anything, so we didn't try. In the end, I guess the big fella took care of things in his own way. If he was a ghost that came back, that's what he was. If there are things like ghosts. Next we will be reading The Bride. The minister's daughter had gotten married. After a wedding ceremony, there was a great feast. With music and dancing and contests and games, even old children's games. When they got to playing hide-and-seek, the bride decided to hide in her grandfather's trunk up in the attic. He'll never find me in there, she thought. 
As she was climbing into the trunk, the lid came down and cracked her on the head, and she fell unconscious inside. The lid slammed shut and locked. No one will ever know how long she was calling for help or how hard she struggled to free herself from that tomb. Everyone in the village searched for her, and they looked almost everywhere, but no one thought of looking in the trunk. After a week, a brand new bridegroom and all the others gave her up for a loss. Years later, a maid went up in the attic looking for something she needed. Maybe it's in the trunk, she thought. She opened it and screamed. There lay the missing bride in her wedding dress, but by then she was only a skeleton. Next we will be reading Rings on Her Finger. Daisy Clark had been in a coma for more than a month when the doctor said that she had finally died. She was buried on a cool summer day in a small cemetery about a mile from her house. May she always rest in such peace, her husband said, but she didn't. Late that night, a grave robber with a shovel and a lantern began to dig her up since the ground was still soft. He quickly reached the coffin and got it open. His hunch was right. Daisy had been buried wearing two valuable rings, a wedding ring with a diamond in it and a ring with a ruby that glowed as if it were alive. The thief got down on his knees and reached into the coffin to get the rings, but they were stuck fast on her fingers. So he decided that the only way to get them was to cut off her fingers with a knife. But when he cut into the finger with the wedding ring, it began to bleed, and Daisy Clark began to stir. Suddenly, she sat up. Terrified, the thief scrambled to his feet. He accidentally kicked over the lantern, and the light went out. He couldn't hear Daisy climb out of her grave. As she moved past him in the dark, he stood there, frozen with fear, clutching the knife in his hand. When Daisy saw him, she pulled her shroud around her and asked, Who are you? When the grave robber heard this corpse speaking, he ran. Daisy shrugged her shoulders and walked on and never once looked back. But in his fear and confusion, the thief fled in the wrong direction. He pitched headlong into her grave, fell onto the knife and stabbed himself. While Daisy walked home, the thief fled to death. Next, we will be reading The Window. Margaret and her brothers, Paul and David, shared a small house on the top of a hill outside the village. It was so warm one summer's night that Margaret could not sleep. She sat up in her bed in the darkness of her room, watched the moon move across the sky. Suddenly, something caught her eye. She saw two small yellow-green lights moving through the woods near the graveyard at the bottom of the hill. They looked like the eyes of some animal, but she could not make out what kind of creature it was. Soon the creature left the woods and moved up the hill towards the house. For a few minutes, Margaret lost sight of it. Then she saw it coming across the lawn towards her window. It looked something like a man, and yet it didn't. Margaret was terrified. She wanted to run from her room, but the door was next to her window. She was afraid the creature would see her and break in before she could escape. When the creature turned into another direction, Margaret rushed to the door, but before she could open the door, it was back. Margaret found herself staring through the window at a shrunken face like that of a mummy. Its yellow-green eyes gleamed like a cat's eye. She wanted to scream, but she was so frightened that she could not make a sound. The creature broke the window glass, unlocked the window, and crawled inside. Margaret tried to flee, but the creature caught her. 
It twisted its long, bony fingers in her hair, pulled back her head, and sank its teeth into her throat. Margaret screamed and fainted. When her brothers heard her piercing scream, they rushed into her room, but by the time they got the door unlocked, the creature had fleed. Margaret's laying on the floor, bleeding and unconscious. While Paul tried to stop the bleeding, David chased the creature down the hill towards the graveyard, but soon he lost sight of it. The police thought it was the work of an escaped lunatic who believed he was a vampire. When Margaret recovered, her brothers wanted to move to a safer place where it would be harder to break in, but Margaret refused. The creature would never come back. She was sure of that. But just in case, Paul and David had begun to keep loaded pistols in their rooms. One night, months later, Margaret was awakened by the scratching sound on the window. When she opened her eyes, there was the same shrunken face staring at her. That night, her brother heard her cries in time. They chased the creature down the hill, and David shot it in the lake, but the creature managed to scramble over the graveyard wall and disappear near an old burial vault. The next day, Margaret and her brothers watched as the sexton of the church opened the burial vault. Inside was a horrifying scene. Broken coffins, bones, and rotting flesh were scattered all over the floor. Only one coffin had not been disturbed. When the sexton opened it, there lay the creature with the shrunken face that had attacked Margaret. The telltale bullet was in its leg. They did the only thing they knew of to rid themselves of a vampire. The sexton built a roaring blaze outside the vault and fed the shrunken body to the flames. They watched the body burn until nothing remained but ashes. It's getting pretty late, and I think I'm going to stop here with the stories. Um, thank you again for listening to me read. I hope you are all enjoying the stories just as much as I am reading them. I will be posting more parts pretty soon, and I hope you guys have a good night or day whenever you are reading this. Thank you for listening to the Rambling Sesh, and I'll read to you later. Bye-bye.